Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Again, we can marvel at God's infinite wisdom that the Holy Spirit in writing the Scriptures had an original reading audience in mind, but has had every reading audience in mind. We can marvel at His wisdom in that way and also find comfort that as we come to His Word this morning, we know this chapter was written for us today and therefore can have confidence that we will hear from heaven even now. This is the word of the Lord. And he, Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed him? These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny Before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I'm not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me... (coughs) Excuse me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit would be pleased to work in us now, that we might understand your word, and that our faith might grow. For Christ's sake, amen. As best I can remember, I think it was 25 years ago, just a couple of months ago actually, I think probably October, 25 years ago, October is when I completed driver's ed in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg system. Finished the classroom portion and I distinctly remember, it's very indelibly imprinted upon my mind, the first day I was in the car. Had to meet my driving instructor to go driving. We met in the parking lot of Charlotte Latin School there on Providence Road. A lady showed up and um, she was a bit haggard and I understand why actually. She looked a bit haggard. 
Because we spent maybe 20 minutes in the car figuring out which pedal was the gas, which pedal was the brake, you know, how to turn the wheel, make sure I didn't hit the curbs. And then she looks at me 20 minutes into my first driving time, literally the first time I'm behind the wheel ever, 20 minutes in, and she says, okay, it's time to hit the road. Miss, are you sure you know what you're doing? Ah, yeah, it's fine. So at approximately 5.20 in the evening, I turned out on Providence Road my first time in the car, driving in the height of Charlotte traffic. And proceeded to spend the next hour, hour and 20 minutes, driving with her, questioning every decision she had ever made in her life to end up at that moment where I was driving a vehicle I had no idea what I was doing. I'm echoing in my mind, surely you've made a mistake. Surely you've made a lot of mistakes to end up at this point because I am seriously underqualified for the task. A couple hours later, mom picks me up, obviously drops by the parking lot. And she's like, how was it? Did you have a nice time driving in the parking lot and parking the car? It's like, oh no, I was out on Providence Road. My mom almost had a stroke. This chapter in so many ways for me <laughs> has a similar feel of that just kind of overwhelming sense of going, surely you've made a mistake. We have some seriously underqualified people doing powerful things. I mean, they're not driving a car out on Providence Road at 5.30 in the evening. They're actually dealing with demons, healing the sick, performing miracles, even raising the dead. And interestingly, you might not realize this, none of the apostles yet, none of these disciples have even been able to articulate that they believe Jesus is God. I mean, this is like a shocking level of an underqualified group of people going out to do things. I mean, you would actually, if you're kind of reading through the book and paying attention, reading it in one go, you would, you would think this chapter's in the wrong place. It would need to go at the end of the book or perhaps even just prior to the crucifixion. But no, it's early on in the book because Matthew's making an important point. You see, thus far, Jesus has already explained to his disciples, he's brought them in, he's explained to his people that follow him, what the kingdom of God is like. His famous Sermon on the Mount, he has explained to them what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, what that lifestyle looks like, what it means to belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How the Spirit transforms you, what forgiveness really looks like. Rather than just preaching that sermon and then kind of motoring on, he goes out and immediately begins to do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle to showcase that he is who he says he is and his word can be trusted. And then here in chapter 10, in many ways I guess the ultimate proof that his word can be trusted he takes a group of 11 bozos and one traitor and equips them with the greatest power the world had seen humans possess and sends them out as his apostles. And again, if you were reading this, if this were a movie script and you were reading it, you would think, there has to be a mistake here. 
I mean, these guys don't know what they're doing. I mean, some of them haven't even, in the way that Matthew has it laid out, haven't even been a part of Jesus' ministry that long. In fact, if you remember, chapter 9 is where Matthew himself shows up. But in doing so, Jesus showcases his tremendous power. The King of kings and the Lord of glory can use even people like you and people like me and people like them. The chapter 10 here is really the commissioning of the 12 apostles. It's the day where they become who they are. And we're going to look at, very quickly, about six different things that Jesus does in this chapter, kind of explaining the nature of ministry. Now, I'm going to say just carefully, this is not a one-to-one thing that we should therefore go out and and replicate. This is for the apostles. We don't have to worry today about going into new towns and shaking dust off our feet literally and making sure that the pastor gets no pay except for food and things of the sort. This is for the apostles. But interestingly, where does it begin? Where does our ministry begin? Where does your ministry begin? Where does the ministry of this church begin? Well, verses 1 through 4, the authority of Christ Jesus is the foundation of Christian ministry. It's significant that here in chapter 10, the way Matthew tells it, Jesus calls all the disciples together, and as he brings them together into the group, what does he highlight there? And then Jesus gave them authority. It's his authority that he specifically then doles out to them. This is yours, and this is yours, and this is yours. Some of you this week will have a very similar type of experience. You'll have the whole family gathered together, and a gigantic pile of presents, And somebody gets to be the one who says, now this one's yours, and this one's yours, and that one's yours, and that one's yours, and gets to distribute them. This is what Jesus is doing, giving his presence, so to speak, to his people. He's giving them authority, he's giving them his power, he's giving them his strength, and you look at what he's giving them as apostles, and it is a marvelous list. Authority over unclean spirits, that's the leadoff, wow. The ability to cast out demons, the ability to heal diseases and afflictions. If you skip to verse 8, the ability to heal the sick, even to raise the dead. From every indication that we have, they go out and they perform all of this ministry. They perform it in Jesus' name. I think it's even so intriguing to me that this is not the point where the disciples figure out that Judas is the traitor. This is not the point where 11 of them are doing miracles and the traitor is the guy who's like, well, yep, it didn't work for him. You know, they're all coming back singing Sesame Street. One of these is not like the others. Instead, Jesus is saying, look, it's my power, and you're using my power, you're using my name, you're using my authority, because ultimately it is Jesus' ministry. I think sometimes this is one of those things that is easy for us to forget, and perhaps, uh, I guess, partially because we're uh, hardwired as a nation to be such individually driven people. 
We're driven to be kind of our own man or our own woman, to think our own thoughts and to be kind of our own person. And it's easy for us to want to kind of minister in our own name, in our own authority, with our own powers, even in our own church. Instead of kind of remembering that, no, the DNA of what it means to be a Christian is to take the authority of Jesus everywhere you go. I mean, that's what Luke is going to do when he tells, he is the gospel of Luke, but then he switches to Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit. And what is he doing? He's telling the story of how the church kind of scattered everywhere. And as they went, what did they do? They took with them two things everywhere they went. They took with them the Word of God, and they took with them the witness of God. They took with them God's word as what he told them truth was and said, this is not my truth, this is not a truth, this is not your truth, this is the truth, it is God's truth. It was written for men and women, boys and girls, and they took it everywhere they went. And interestingly, everywhere the early Christians went as they suffered and died, what did they take with them? They were God's witnesses telling the story of how the Lord had changed them, how the Lord had transformed them, how the Lord was working in their lives. We have some of these recorded in Paul of how he speaks about himself. You know, such were some of us. We were this way, but look, we're different now. Look, we were children of wrath. We were these objects of judgment, but now we're different. The Lord has changed His people. I think perhaps some of us, it's easy to kind of forget that, that the Lord is actually intentionally giving His people uh, His authority to conduct His ministry. It's one of the things Tom prays for regularly when we pray on Friday mornings as we pray for the ministries of this church to reflect on just how marvelous of a reality it is that Jesus would say, it's better for the church that I return to heaven and the Holy Spirit work through my people. I mean, again, on, on first reading, we would all think, well, no, it would be better if Jesus was here with us physically. Jesus disagrees. He says it's better that he's gone, and instead we have God's word, we have God's spirit, we have God's people, and we work together as a church. It's his design. It gives us opportunity to kind of marvel at God's infinite wisdom that he'd be able to use people like us. All right, so when it comes time for you to reflect on how to spend your life, you're supposed to spend your life in ministry, and the reason why is because you've been given the authority of Jesus. Now, that means that you don't just get to make up stories. You don't just get to make up rules. You don't just get to make up things. We're going to find that in just a moment. Jesus himself says in verse 34, a little bit inconveniently for this time of year, I didn't come to bring peace. Came to bring the sword. Hmm, that's awkward. We have to be captivated by this word so we have a story to tell, so we know the truth that we are to proclaim. On a, just a pragmatic level, the vast majority of the ministry of this church needs to be conducted by people other than me. I'm the pastor, I can preach, that's good and all, but there's like 141 more of you than there are me. 
you know, if y'all just do that much, 141 times that much is far more than I can do. And interestingly, your ministry is, it's kind of different in its function, but it's not different in its authority in that regard. Jesus uses his people through their word and their witness. Now, you could see how that would be a bit of an intimidating thing, and maybe perhaps say, well, okay, if, if Jesus has sent me out in some fashion into my neighborhood, into my job, into my family, into my school, with my classmates or whatever else it is, if he sent me into the places that he's placed me, what am I supposed to do? What does ministry look like for me? What does ministry look like for a fourth grade girl? What does ministry look like for a 72-year-old man? What does ministry look like? Well, interesting, we might have certainly different kind of aspects to it, but the essence is the same. The person of Christ, secondly here, the person of Christ is the focus of ministry. His authority is the foundation. His person is the focus. That's ultimately the point that Jesus makes in verses 5 through 15. As he takes the 12 apostles and he sends them out, he gives them very specific instructions for how their apostolic ministry is supposed to begin, and it is very rigid. Go to the Jews, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Do your ministry, do not receive anything for it except for food and housing, so no profit can be given. And when you get into the town, go to the, you know, the first house, and if they are not willing to receive you, if the people are not ready to listen, you just basically hand them over to judgment. Wow. But what is he, he trying to present for the apostles is to remind them that, look, it's not about getting caught up with the ancillary details, the, the secondary, the tertiary, the even lower level details, but the person of Jesus is the focus. It would have been easy for them to just show up and and perform miracle after miracle after miracle because God has given them that power. I mean, can you imagine you walk into a town and say, well, is there any recent dead here? Show me the body. Let's fix that. But interestingly, what does Jesus tell them? Well, that's the second step. The first bit is that you have to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, his kingdom is here. The King of kings and the Lord of glory has arrived, and guess what? The the resurrections and the healings and the miracles, they're proof of the person of who Jesus is. Don't get sidetracked on the, the small things or the stupid things or even the okay things. Be consumed with the person and work of God. I suspect that this concept, which is going to continue ringing through the rest of this chapter, is one of those concepts that intellectually all of us would probably agree with. You don't want a, a pastor who's giving you economic lessons. You don't need me to be a political scientist in the pulpit. I think most of us would say, we want a, we want a pastor who, who tells me about Jesus. And likewise, when we think about our evangelism, we need to be reminded that we need evangelists to tell us about Jesus.
that have a a focus and all-consuming emphasis on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reason why I suspect that sometimes that might be a touch hard for us is that means that we have to get rid of distractions. And if we're going to be honest, we live in the greatest age of distraction in human history. I mean, even in my specialty, my field of preaching, there's book after book after book about how to preach to an age of distraction. And you have titles like that, preaching in the age of distraction, preaching to an internet-fueled people, you know, pe- preaching to people who've been, had their brains melted by all of the distractions of our current culture. We, we live in a world that is so constantly filled with small and glittery and distracting things. I think it's going to be intriguing to see how the American church kind of rebounds from uh, this year 2020 of COVID where so many have left their churches and so many churches have stayed closed and we've watched attendance kind of all over been kind of transformed and changed for the American church and to see when we get back our church is going to try to fill themselves with distractions or will our message be the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Now you can see there's going to be a a kind of logical flow to Jesus as he's instructing them here. He says, look, first you have my authority. That's the basis of your ministry. Therefore, go out and tell everybody about who I am. That's the content of your ministry. But Jesus is fully aware that if you do that, If you, with authority, proclaim that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the only truth, he's not your truth, sorry, he is the truth, well, guess what? People aren't going to like that. People are not going to be able to deal with the truth, right? The classic, you can't handle the truth. That's so much the nature of the human heart where people instantly get offended. It's intriguing how Jesus here, what's the thing that follows immediately kind of in the paragraph is to say, oh yeah, by the way, look, as you go out with my authority, as you go out saying my message, what's going to happen is everybody's going to hate you. Now he's being hyperbolic here, obviously. But all kinds of people, everywhere you go, there are going to be people that despise this type of religion because it's making truth claims, it's saying those truth claims are the only truth claims, and that Jesus is unique inside and outside creation. Here, even Christ gives prophetic statements that are fulfilled by uh, really the end of the book of Acts, really. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men. Why? Because they're going to deliver you over to courts. And they're going to flog you in their synagogues and you'll be uh, dragged before governors and kings. All, All this is fulfilled in the book of Acts. And apostles, by and large, died horrible deaths. Persecuted, by either the moral-ish Romans or the Jews who had the Old Testament. 
And they were persecuted and they were destroyed in their bodies for making those unique claims. It's one of those things that you often see in kind of preaching books and such is that if everybody agrees with your preaching, if everybody agrees with your message, you probably don't have it right. If you don't periodically have people get upset because you're stepping on their toes or you're challenging them to give up their old ways, to give up their perspective of the world, well, guess what? You're probably not doing it correctly. I think there's a a great sense of kind of comfort and consolation in this moment and really, in some ways, I guess, a very gentle rebuke. For those of us that were raised in a culture like I was where uh, the I ideal kind of Christian virtue was being nice, which by the way is not biblical, but uh, it was treated in many ways as the ideal Christian virtue. What does it mean to be holy? Well, it means that you're nice. I think Jesus in many ways undoes that. Nice is not actually on the table for Christians. Kind, yes. Gentle, yes. Holy, yes. Truthful, yes. Faithful, yes. Nice, because nice people at some point what they end up being is overly flexible and willing to compromise even on their ultimate values and what Jesus is laying out here to say look if you're filled with my authority if you are captivated by my person if your ministry is is proclaiming the truth that Jesus has given to us not everybody will like you in fact some people are just going to downright hate you And that's an okay thing. Now, many of you know I have a slightly dark sense of humor. It's one of the great joys I have actually being a pastor is watching people not know what to do when they find out that I'm a pastor. After they've been using all the normal language of the culture and then find out that I'm a pastor and watch them try to backpedal to figure out, okay, what do I do? Always gives me an interesting little smirk and a giggle inside my head. But it's actually even more intriguing as you watch just the world try to figure out, what do I do with a man who says that me living my life the way I want is evil? That is an intriguing question, isn't it? Because funny enough, there are some people that meet me and they just don't like me at all. Even before they've given a chance to figure out they really shouldn't like me temperamentally anyways. Because what we see here is this, this reality of God's people making the truth claims of Christ. It's going to be this dividing line that some people will just by definition hate. I'm going to humbly suggest, I think again, this is the mistake that the American church made in the 80s. The American church in the 80s really, as part of that kind of moral majority push, really pushed to create a church that would be liked by everybody. I think that was a mistake. I think at the beginning where Jesus says here in verse 16 to be shrewd as serpents, but gentle as doves, wise as serpents, I think that was a strategic mistake. Instead of saying, no, we're the people of the truth. And if you don't like it, I'm not mad at you. I'll still love you. I'll still take care of you. If you're my neighbor and you need food, I'll still help provide you with food. But I'm not going to compromise my message. Not everybody's going to like us, and that's all right. 
But you can see, again, as that would take place, you would think there, there's a bit of an emotional turmoil to this. If, if we're acknowledging that part of being a Christian means that a substantial portion of the culture will despise you for who you are in your very essence, you would need some affirmation. And interestingly, that's immediately what Jesus turns to. So don't be afraid of them. What's the worst they can do to you? Right? What, what is the worst that the world has to offer for you? What is the absolute worst thing they can do to you? Well, they could kill your body in the most painful po- way possible, but at the end of the day, all they can do is kill your body. Because guess what? That body's not going to stay dead. It'll be raised and you get to spend eternity with Jesus, so the worst thing they can do is give you your great promotion to the life to come a little bit early. Instead, Jesus says, look, trust in the one who has the authority over both the body and the soul. Trust in the one who can govern the unseen. Trust in the one who will perfectly restore all that is needed to be restored to you. Trust in the one who watches over even the hairs of your head. Trust in the one who knows everything about you. Interestingly, Christ is a Clearly explaining here that this is the Father, but implying as part of it, that's the nature of his ministry. He's telling his apostles, look, you go out and you do your ministry because I'm watching over you like this. Nowhere you can go will be outside of my control. Nowhere you can go will be outside of my kind provision, my gentle care, my sovereign administration. Nowhere you can go. will take you away from that. Again, I, I do wonder here again if this is one of the things that the American church, we don't really know that emotional struggle, but mainly because we've failed so badly on the first three. Because we've not been perhaps quite as strong and quite as clear in being focused on the Lord Christ as the focus of our ministry, that this hasn't had to be a reality for us, but I suspect it's going to become that. I mean, if we look at those cultures that are perhaps a generation or two ahead of us and watch what's happening there and we see, you know, in perhaps to our north or perhaps even across the Atlantic and watch where things that are clearly explained in this book have become illegal to say, well, Guess what? Have no fear. What's the worst they can do? Throw you in jail? Get rid of your body? Trust in the one who governs your soul? In fact, now this is where Jesus, I think, kind of applies it a little bit further in verses 34 through 39. And again, this wonderfully kind of ironic Christmas message. We're going to sing the other half of this. In just a moment, the end of the service. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. What Jesus is saying here is he hasn't come to play nice with everyone. He he hasn't come, his ministry is not one that is designed to have everybody like it, like room temperature water. Like that kind of room temperature water, I don't hate it, I don't love it, it just is. That's not the ministry of Jesus. 
The ministry of the Lord Jesus is one, actually, he goes so far as to say, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword, a, an instrument of division. His ministry, the focus of his ministry is to make it very clear that people are in different categories. He'll explain it later by saying some are sheep and some are goats. They're totally different animals. They're very different things. And part of that is because though we cannot see it from our side, he's acknowledging there's only two groups of people. There are those that know him and love him. And there are those that will be objects of his wrath. And that's it. There are those that belong to him, those that are a part of the people of God. They might not realize it yet, that's okay. There are those that belong to him, and there are those that will be objects of his wrath. And in fact, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately for some, the difficulty here is that that dividing line between who knows him, who belongs to him, and who doesn't, it doesn't follow the standard lines that you might hope for. It doesn't follow family lines. In some cases, it's parent versus child, it's spouse versus spouse. Some of you know those realities in your own home with your own spouse or in your own home with your parents or growing up with parents or uh, taking care of parenting your children. Jesus' challenge here is to kind of call us to be reminded his ministry is one of division in this regard. Now, this message is a hard message, which is why if you actually study American history, it's only just a handful of generations in the northeast of our great country where that message became too intolerable to say, and they began to substitute a false doctrine called universalism instead. They began to say, look, it's too hard to admit that people that I love will go to hell forever, will be the objects of God's judgment. It's too hard to say that. So instead, what I'll say is everybody wins in the end. Everybody gets the good ending. Everybody gets to go to heaven. It doesn't matter if you know them or not. And again, what we've done is we've traded biblical truth for something that might make me feel a little bit better for a short time. Jesus here clarifies, no, that's not the reality of biblical salvation. It's a clear dividing line. And if you're going to really wrestle with that, you're going to find that uh, true Christianity, uh, Jesus is clear, his, his burden is easy, his yoke is light, it's, it's a freeing thing, but emotionally it can be very difficult. I mean, it can be very difficult. I mean, think about it just, again, from my perspective, as I stand up here in the pulpit and I preach knowing that all of the seats that are filled and the people that watch from home, that not everyone is part of that family. To know that part of the purpose of my preaching is to encourage some toward heaven and the purpose of my preaching is to further condemn some toward hell. To know that part of my ministry standing in this pulpit is to warn folks that apart from Christ, you will receive God's judgment forever. And you wonder why I'm not fun at parties. There's the answer. 
Because every time I stand in the pulpit and I look at your handsome and beautiful faces, I see you, but I see the behind the scenes of that. To say every sermon is in some fashion that dividing line, going out in the room, taking some and encouraging for glory, and taking others and condemning further for hell. And I'll be honest with you. There are very few doctrines that make me want to leave this pulpit more than that one. How many Sundays I've stood in the pulpit and felt that same experience from 25 years ago. I'm just grossly underqualified for the task. Praise God the Spirit works because I'd be in trouble otherwise. And you can imagine how the apostles would have felt. He's standing there to them saying, oh yeah, by the way, uh, really ultimately before my ministry is even done in your midst, some of you are going to start dying for me, right? You're going to have problems very early on in this. I think it's interesting where Jesus ends his instructions for them. It's with promise, but I love how he understands the frailty of the human heart. He gives them a promise of something so much greater that even in those moments of great discouragement that we can have fixed in our minds that our God is doing something. And in fact, actually, when we're faithful in ministry, He gives a reward. Here, He's actually, verses 40 and 41, He's applying it to the people who listen. Look to those who listen to the apostles' teaching and they receive the apostles' teaching. Guess what? They receive a reward in their own life as they listen to God's word, as they receive God's word, as they actively seek to believe God's word. But even in 42 and then in <laughs> there at the end, that the next page in my Bible, he's got it where he's saying, look, the blessing is not simply contained to them. Any of the people of God that are participants in this ministry who receive the word of the Lord Christ in such a way, their life is marked by reward, ultimately, not just here, but in the life to come. It's that reality that keeps preachers sane while they preach. To know that the word that we say is a dividing line of those that will know the Lord Christ and those will not. It's the thing that emotionally keeps our minds and our hearts knit together is to say that the the emotional turmoil has to be worth it because Jesus is the reward and he gives me one later. Though I might not feel it now, though it might be too burdensome now, though it might hurt my heart, the reward is worth it in the end. And I would simply make a very quick application on this point, and it is this. This is where we get to see God's blessing for us, is that the idea of reward for most Christians is no longer that intriguing, because our lives are so blessed already. Most of us eat really well. Most of us have people that love us and tell us that. If we need a hug, there's at least 28 people in the room that will give us one if we need it. And so perhaps maybe it's a little weak for us to remember that it's worth it in the end. 
But I would end with this challenge uh, for us as a whole. I I don't know what next year holds. Uh, I'm glad. It's one of the Lord's great generosities to me and great kindnesses to me that I can't see the future because I've been very upfront in saying I'm a coward and if I knew the future, I would run from it every time. The one thing I do suspect though is that this year is actually not the hard year. Next year is. This is the year that the damage was done. Next year is the year where we begin to watch it play out. Next year is the year where all of the trauma from this year comes home to roost. Using Hosea's language, we've sown the wind. Next year we reap the whirlwind. We get to see the effects of a culture that's been locked in its house for nine months. I suspect that's going to be a hard thing. Living inside my own head is never a good thing. I know for you, living inside your own head is never a good thing. When an entire nation does it, I don't know what happens. I suspect that it's going to be incredibly important that as we go into 2021, that this portion of the body of Christ be laser-focused on the ministry that Jesus has set out before us. I didn't say it in the setting part, but it's intriguing where this comes in the Gospel of Matthew. Did you read just the previous paragraph if you came prepared? Chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. People of God, the the harvest around us is huge. I mean, this town's tripled in population since I moved here. We're watching growth happening left, right, and center everywhere we are. And now having trauma inflicted on top of that. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are here. Will we take up the mantle? And when we do, what will it look like? Will we be laser focused on Christ and his ministry or will we be distracted by silly and small things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We acknowledge that we are a mess. The task is too great for us and we thank you for your spirit who works within us. Even this coming year, would you be pleased to use this portion of the church to gather and perfect the people of God? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.